and he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, and, uh, with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak, to him, to, or to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town in Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and, filled, and was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, we come to hear you speak. We come to receive revelation of the only triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit to come and behold the riches that are in Christ Jesus. Would you prepare our hearts? Would you remove the distractions that can easily arise? And may we give attention to your word. May you plant it deep in our hearts. It's in Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. Marcus Tullius Cicero was born in 106 B.C. He grew up to become a Roman statesman, a scholar, a writer, a philosopher, and a renowned speaker or orator. One of his lost writings was called Hortensius, which was originally written as a dialogue between he and another statesman. This work was uh, considering the paradox that every person sets out to be happy, but the majority of people are wretched or miserable. Not much has changed in over 2,000 years, has it? This work was incredibly impactful to a young philosopher by the name of Augustine, or Augustine, if you like to say it differently. Cicero's writing sent Augustine on a lifelong project of thinking and discussing why are people so discontent? Why are they so joyless? Now, Augustine, years later, would become a Christian, and we know him as Augustine of Hippo, or Augustine of Hippo. But a key part of his conclusion is that our loves are out of order. Our loves are out of order. Uh, In Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, he details Augustine's conclusions that what most fundamentally shapes a person is not what they believe, what they think, or even what they do, but what they love. Their love drives all those other things. Therefore, the unhappiness and the disorder of our lives are caused chiefly by the disorder of our loves. In other words, a righteous and devout or a just and good person is one who has their loves rightly ordered. 
In other words, what you love determines the kind of person you are and the kind of person you will be. So what about, this, what about you this morning? What is it that you love? What kind of person are you? Are you discontent? Are you joyless? Are you impatient? Do you get a taste of true joy only for it to vanish a moment later? Augustine would say that your loves are disordered. And our experience shows this. Our aim to be the best at something will always let us down because next year we need to do it again. Hence what happens in every sports season, every NFL football team, if you will. Keeping a home clean or orderly or tidy is to die a thousand deaths as it's filled with children and with guests. To seek a healthy body is torture as you slowly watch yourself decay no matter what you try to do to stay fit. To indulge in your favorite holidays and foods, as maybe many of us have in the past weeks, is only to realize they're gone tomorrow, and again, Christmas is however many days away. Even in wrapping up our love and joy in children and our spouse is bound to let us down. It's bound to let us down when they wrong you or when those children inevitably grow up or when you and your spouse or children maybe grow apart or God forbid on the day that they would face an untimely death. How disordered are your loves today? How discontent, restless, and joyless do you feel? For our loves and joy to ultimately be fulfilled, they must be placed in something that's ultimate, something that's not just here today and gone tomorrow. See, the final Christmas song in the book of Luke is declaring, here, here is the ultimate one. Here is the Lord's Christ. Or as the angel in the past song in Luke 2.11 said, this is Christ the Lord. We find two witnesses in Simeon and Anna whose love and joy are rightly ordered as they look upon Jesus the Christ who has come to reveal resurrection or ruin for mankind. I will break one uh, reformed rule today in preaching, or at least something that's taboo. Uh, Typically when you preach uh, about following any example, it should always only be, the children know the answer, Jesus, right? But today we do find two examples of people who are exemplary in many ways. And we'll see that in the text, albeit it is on account of the Holy Spirit. What I'd like to do for us uh, to begin, I want us to walk through the passage again, and then we'll, we'll explore just three more brief points. And so we pick up where we left off on Christmas Eve. The shepherds glorified God, and it said that Mary pondered all these things. And in verses 21 to 24, we find that Jesus is being identified with his people in every way. How so? Well, Mary and Joseph follow the law of Moses, the law of the Lord. Even though their means are limited, they're not able to bring the normal or required sacrifice of a lamb, but they bring what poverty-stricken people bring. They bring two birds to come and sacrifice. Jesus knows what it is to be poverty-stricken. In verses 25 to 27, Luke introduces this new character, Simeon. What's interesting is Simeon is not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's certainly not a king. He's not a man of high rank or status or a famous name. But his credentials are that he's called righteous and devout. 
The reason why he's righteous and devout is because it says, what about him? The Holy Spirit was upon him. In these three verses, it mentions the Holy Spirit three times in association with Simeon. The Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's Christ. What does that mean, the Lord's Christ? Now, in the Old Testament, wherever God is called Yahweh, for reverence of the name, it's, when it's translated, it was translated, at least into the Greek, as kurios, as Lord in English. And so here, we should just simply see that Lord means God, right? This is God's Christ. Well, what is or who is Christ? Well, Christ means anointed one. See, in the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, they were all anointed with oil. That was marking them that they were chosen agents to fulfill God's work, God's ministry among the people. However, throughout the Old Testament, there was a promised, specific anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, who was going to come, who would save God's people and establish God's kingdom on earth. And so Simeon is waiting He's been promised to see the Lord's Christ, God's anointed one, before he died. So in verses 28 through 30, Simeon receives this very Christ into his very arms. And he blesses God with this prayer, with this song. It says, in in seeing God's salvation in the face of Jesus Christ, he is ready now, today, this moment. He is ready to die to depart in peace, to die happy. Maybe we'd put in our vernacular. Well, in verses 31 and 32, Simeon is actually quoting Isaiah 42, 49, 52, and 60. You can see that this is prominent in Isaiah and, and as well as other prophets. But he's quoting that this salvation that's coming is no secret. It's not being hidden in some corner but rather it has been prepared in the presence of, or also could be translated, before the face of all the peoples. This is Luke's favorite way of saying, everyone in the world, all the peoples. And this baby Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. Gentiles meaning non-ethnic Jews. So a light to the Gentiles for for their salvation. But yet it's still a glory for the Jews, it says. He says, because the promised Savior, salvation itself, is coming through one particular people, through Jesus, coming through the Jews. Well, in verses 33 through 35, Simeon turns to look to bless Mary and Joseph. And he says to Mary, The child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The hearts of man will be exposed through Jesus Christ. Many, for many it will mean salvation, it will mean resurrection, rising. But for many it will be a fall to ruin, for they stand opposed to Christ. And their opposition will lead to Jesus' very death on the cross. It will lead to a sword piercing Mary's soul also in the mourning and the loss of her son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at least for a time. In verses 36 to 38, a second faithful witness is introduced in the prophetess, Anna, a woman from one of the fallen tribes of Israel, Asher. This is someone who in a tribe has, been, uh, has, has fallen away many centuries before, but perhaps 
Asher, at least for Anna, has traced her lineage through to still be a part of uh, the Jews, a part of this people. Being a prophet means that you speak the very words of God. That's what a prophet does. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides along a prophet. And so we could say rightly about Anna, she's a fiercely godly woman, but she also has this Holy Spirit upon her. And we could see in her life the godliness. After losing a husband, after only seven years of marriage, she's lived many decades, many, many decades, not turning away from the Lord. But instead, she's devoted her life to the Lord, to joy in Him. And in seeing Jesus, the Christ Lord, she comes and she continues. The, the verb tense there is, is communicating. She is continuing to give thanks and she is continuing to speak of him to others about the salvation or the redemption of Jerusalem, it says. In verses 39 to 40, to end this section, they, they end much of the way they began. The law of the Lord is fulfilled. Right? Jesus has come to fulfill that law and Mary and Joseph ensure that he does. And it says that Jesus grew up in his, that is God's favor. Well, this passage, if we, as we've walked through it all, this passage teaches that Jesus is the Christ. That's what all the Gospels are setting out before us. Jesus is the Christ, the chosen one of God. And Jesus is the Christ who reveals resurrection or ruin for mankind. That's the main idea. If you can see it, see it in your bulletin as well. And a devoted life, or rather you and I, must live a devoted life of love for and joy in Christ. And a devoted life, from our text, we could learn that it's first, it's Holy Spirit supplied. God must be the one to produce it in us. But it has a mark of being patient, willing to wait for what's worth it. And then finally, it is a devotion, a love and joy in Christ that is prepared for death. And resurrection. So first, our first point, because Jesus is the Christ, you must have a spirit-driven, spirit-supplied love and joy in Christ. Luke, now for a few chapters, has made clear that everything that's happening is from God. He's made that clear by sending angels or by having the Holy Spirit do the work, right? Conceive Jesus in the womb of Mary, right? come and speak here or be upon uh, Simeon and Anna. Now, as just a brief, uh, a brief comment about who is the Holy Spirit, because this is often one of the most misunderstood, certainly people in the Trinity, uh, but even doctrines in our day, who is the Holy Spirit? We have to consider the, tr- the nature of the triune God. You see, some of the confusion that happens throughout the Gospels is that they see Jesus the man, the one born of a woman, born under a law, and they see or begin to believe that he's the promised Christ. He's a man, but the promised Christ, but yet he does acts and attributes to himself things that only God can do. We've seen this now for months in Mark. But the Jews, they know that God is one, right? God is one being. How can God be in heaven and yet God be here on earth? And yet who is the Holy Spirit who is upon and guiding and leading Anna and Simeon? Well, the Bible reveals that the nature of God is to be one being in three persons, This is essential and central to our faith, as the church has confessed for millennia. That is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. On nearly every page of the New Testament, we hear of the Father and the Son. What about the Holy Spirit? 
Well, the New Testament shows that the Holy Spirit has his own personhood, like the Father and the Son. He's grieved over sin, Ephesians 4.30 says. says that uh, he can be tested or lied to in Acts 5. Even in John 16, 8, uh, 8 to 13, or in that section, it talks about him being the helper and the advocate, the one who convicts us of sin, and even the one who leads us into all truth. It's the role of the Spirit. It's what he does in our lives in the third, as the third person of the Trinity. And so at the core of who God is, what do we find? We find a tri-unity, three, tri-unity. And this is important because at the core of God, we find an eternally loving, perfect, joyful, glorious relationship within God. This is how God even can be love in and of himself, the plurality of persons and yet one being. He is love himself. See, our text goes on to show that what establishes Simeon's and Anna's testimonies are that they are being guided by the Holy Spirit. This is not on account of their own righteousness or devotion. They are prime examples of actually what Israel should be and what Israel was supposed to respond like to the Christ. And they actually are prime examples of even what, is, what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. First, how do we, know, how do we see this? Well, they believe that Jesus is the Christ who is Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and the world. How might you know that you have the Holy Spirit? This is the first piece. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that no one can say Jesus is accursed unless they don't have the Spirit. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord without the Spirit. See, one may be able to give you detailed information about a mystical experience, but if someone would deny that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God come in the flesh to save mankind, then they do not have the Holy Spirit. For as Jesus says in John 16, 13 to 14, the Spirit guides into all truth, and he's come to do what? To glorify the Son, to glorify Jesus Christ. It's the chief work of the Spirit in this way. Well, the second thing, or the second reason we'd know that Simeon and Anna are prime examples of the Spirit's filling is that we actually see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit. What are the first two? Love, joy. Love and joy in Him. The chief signs that someone is guided by the Holy Spirit is that they have faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Savior of sinners, and they begin to bear the fruit of love for God and joy in Him, His work in them. In uh, 2020... When countless aging couples in nursing homes or care facilities were separated due to concerns for, for COVID at the time, there was one clip early on in that, uh, in that window of time of this husband standing outside of his bride's room, and he was singing to her through the window, and he was singing Amazing Grace. And with only a few words in, she joined in to that song. This was a concrete picture of God's love. Not just of God's love, rather. This was a concrete picture of this man's love, rather. I correct that line. It was a concrete picture of even rightly ordered and increasing love. See, real love and real joy in the Lord, it's like the Holy Spirit, or like his work, in that it does not become more cryptic. 
It doesn't become more elusive, but instead it becomes more concrete. It becomes more clear as love grows, less ethereal, more substantive. Certainly you see that in the man singing to his bride after many years of marriage. Concrete, rightly ordered love. If you ask your family or close friends, what is it that I love the most? What is it that I find joy the most in? What would they say about you? I assume they might point to concrete things like a sports banner on the wall or a team that you watch every weekend, maybe. Maybe they'd point to your collection of, it is, of whatever it is that you collect. Perhaps it's your hobby that devours the hours from five to nine each day. Maybe it's your, co- your consumption of political content. See, whatever you love or find joy in, those around you can tell. Because it doesn't become more cryptic, it, cryptic, it becomes more concrete. You can see what someone loves by what they do, what they speak about, what they invest in. And you see what enables Simeon and Anna to have their concrete love and joy all wrapped up in Jesus Christ is the Spirit of God. You will always settle in this life for something lesser, more finite, more temporary. And inevitably you will find it dissatisfying. That is, unless you relinquish, unless you relinquish your loves to the Spirit of God who desires to produce faith in Jesus the Lord and the fruit of love and joy in Christ. This morning as you gather, if you are unchurched or dechurched, your first move is simply to trust in Jesus Christ, to, to claim that Jesus is the Lord, the one in whom salvation for sinners is for people like me and you, and is made possible through him. But from there, you can join with those who trust in Christ, And we all, together, can invite the Spirit of God to reorder our loves, to produce that fruit of love and joy in Him, and to grow in this way. If we continue on, in our second point, we see that our love and joy in Christ not only must be supplied by the Spirit of God, but that it will also take on a character of patience. Now, children, children, I might need your help with this a little bit. Are you familiar with the book, Oh, the Places You'll Go?, does anyone have that book? Oh, the places I know the Leatherberry children do because it's one of our favorites. Oh, the places you'll go is written by Dr. Seuss. And he talks in this book about the most useless place, what he calls the, the waiting place. He says this For people are just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come, or a plane to go or the mail to come, or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or waiting around for a yes or no, or waiting even for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. Waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for the wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for Friday night, or waiting for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. No, not you. Somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying. You'll find the bright places where the boom bands are playing. Isn't waiting the worst? Doesn't it feel like a useless place? This may be because we are an incredibly impatient people. We are bent on buying and looking for things that give us immediate comfort. Consider the appliances we have. Thank God for so many of them. 
but we have plenty of gadgets to distract us in the midst of waiting. Consider the screens in your pockets, the ones you look at the first thing when you wake up and the last thing you look at before you go to bed. When things go wrong, we need them to be made right and right now, preferably according to our convenience. See, we've trained ourselves to believe that we can find the bright places where the boom bands are playing all by ourselves. And if we can't, we have at least two GPSs on our phones that will get us there and avoid the construction. Do you know that God loves you so much that he makes you wait? Do you know that God loves you so much that he befuddles your best efforts for immediate comfort and joy in something else? He gives you even a life that demands that you wait. Could anyone name the next two fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5? We have love, joy. Wow, there, uh, right. If we're in a gunfight, I will bring you, Greg. That was a quick draw. Peace, peace, patience. Love and joy, willing to wait. Why are Simeon and Anna the next two witnesses to see and name Jesus as the Christ? The comfort and consolation, the redemption of Israel, as verse 32 said, and, and also of the world, it says there. Now, it may be that uh, they want, we want to fulfill the Old Testament law, because this is, this is all over this passage. We fulfill the Old Testament law. Jesus has come to do this. And what do we need in the Old Testament law to verify a witness, or verify a testimony, rather? We need two witnesses. It may be that they are credible witnesses because of their age. They're honored as credible witnesses due to their age. And it may be that being a man and a woman with the Holy Spirit upon them foreshadows that prophecy from Joel that after the Christ comes, Israel's sons and daughters would have the Spirit poured out on them and they'd prophesy because they do that. Now those are all likely reasons, but we also grasp that their love and their joy in Christ is so complete. How? Because they're willing to wait for a lifetime. Simeon and Anna are willing to wait a lifetime just to see their Savior's face. They're prime examples of embracing godliness for the love of God. Neither are resentful, bitter, seeking microwavable solutions or forgetting him or trading in for spiritual counterfeits or spiritual band-aids. They have not fallen prey to earthly ambitions like wealth or pleasure or temporary gain. They haven't run from Dr. Seuss's most useless place. Instead, they've relished it. By the Spirit, their love and joy in God is patient. See the joy in Simeon's voice in his song. It's been worth the wait. What are you waiting for today? I would bet that that is the thing you really love. If you were to say, well, nothing, then what you really love and find joy in is just yourself. Because you don't have self-control to even make yourself wait. And in truth, when you and I don't get what we want, we quickly despair or become depressed. And if we're adults, we throw perhaps a little more respectable temper tantrums. Or we go and numb ourselves with alcohol, with painkillers, or with sugar. What counterfeit gods, shortcuts, spiritual band-aids do you go to when you're in the waiting place? You know you're in that waiting place when you grow angry quickly, when you look for a numbing agent. You see that your impatience has arisen 
And there you see that your love for the Lord, your joy in him is lacking. But God loves you so much to allow you to wait. And he supplies you a spirit, the spirit, who will actually cultivate this in you. Produce the love, joy, the peace, and the patience to wait for him. So you need not look to counterfeit gods, to microwavable idols, or numbing agents like sex, drugs, and alcohol. See, Jesus Christ and his salvation was worth the wait for Simeon and Anna. And it is for you too. Ask God to expose your counterfeit gods, to replace them as only the Holy Spirit can, with a fiercer love and joy, a peace and a patience in waiting for him. The Spirit indeed can produce such a patience in you. Well, our final and our, and our most brief point centers upon Jesus' revealing resurrection or ruin for man. And that a true love and joy in Christ will ready us for a death and a resurrection. Have you ever done a, uh, a litmus test before? Science project as a kid, maybe just homeschool fun, doing a litmus test. Litmus tests are, right, we're testing if a substance or a liquid is either acidic or if it's basic. You put, if you put the litmus paper into the acidic mixture, what, what color does it come out as? So no? Maybe we'll do a, we're going to do an experiment now, someday, so that we all know this. It, it usually typically comes out red, right? It comes out red. And if you put the litmus paper into a basic or alkaline mixture, it would turn blue, blue. Now, it could depend somewhat on the paper, but typically the paper isn't necessarily, necessarily what changes the outcome of the test. But it's what's in the mixture that produces the red or the blue. Verses 34 and 35 are showing that Jesus, the Christ, is the litmus test for Israel, for the whole world, all the peoples. His coming exposes the very substance of your heart and of my heart. Is it a blessing that Jesus would expose your heart and mine and show whether we are heading for falling or heading towards rising? It doesn't sound like a blessing to us. Why? Because it challenges our view that Jesus is like a sweet grandpa sneaking us smiles and sweets for all of our mischief. Or that he's like a cheerleader cheering us on as we just try to find our true selves. Or a common Midwestern view that Jesus is is distant. He's unengaged in my life. He's uncaring what I daily do as long as I try to be good and if I believe in him. No, Jesus himself, his ministry, his word contained in the Bible, his death, resurrection, ascension, and baptism of the church with the Holy Spirit, all these things, your response to them are a litmus test to expose your heart. And it's good. Because those who stand opposed, it will show that they are headed for falling, for ruin. But those who believe and love and have joy in Christ are destined for rising. This Greek word actually could also be said as resurrection, raising to new life. There's no middle ground. Because our sin only deserves ruin. And Christ is the only one who can resurrect us to life. We believe in the one who is the first to be resurrected to life. Simeon's very words apply to himself and Anna. 
And seeing Jesus, their love and their joy is what is exposed. You cut them open and what they bleed is love and joy for Christ, thanks to the Holy Spirit alone. Simeon's response is, I can now die happy. I can die in peace. For Simeon, he's held salvation in his very arms and he's ready to taste death and resurrection. Anna's heart exposed shows uh, a similar desire, or rather the similar love and joy, but her response is different. You would think of a woman who is either 84 or, perhaps how we read it, could be 105 if she's been 84, uh, 84 years as a widow. Her response is, um, is not that she's ready to die, but what does she do? She begins to persistently give thanks to God and goes and proclaims to everyone. This sweet 84 or 105-year-old woman goes to proclaim about the redemption that has come in Jesus Christ. For you children, teenagers, university students, for any that are here, and the students are on break, children, when someone asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Of course the answer is Jesus. No, you don't want to be Jesus, but you want to be like Jesus. But what do you want to be like when you grow up is the, is the better question. You can say, I want to be like Simeon or Anna. It's because I want my love for Jesus, my joy in him to be so complete so that whether I must wait to see him, whether I must wait to live as a widow or in poverty or as someone of no high rank or no high status, that Jesus will still be enough, more than enough for me so that I can die in peace and I can resurrect with Christ my Lord. That's what you want to be like when you grow up. For those who are aging, who feel the the weight of the aches and the pains, Simeon and Anna's spirit-produced example has something for you today. In looking upon Jesus Christ, you can have peace in the face of death, which is coming for us all. It's the final enemy to be defeated, and Jesus will defeat it. He will. And we don't have to be scared because resurrection is also coming following it. Your love and joy in Christ will not actually be lessened. Whatever love and joy you have that's pleasing, gives you peace now, it will be only exponentially increased, perfected in being with Christ. But while you, the aging, are yet in the land of the living, you can follow Anna's and the psalmist's example. Psalm 71.18, perhaps it's David, He prays, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. The children, the younger generations here, they are here to hear your witness about who Jesus Christ is. You can pray as well that by the Spirit of God, that Psalm 92.14 would be true of you. It says, the, the righteous flourish. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. And they declare, the Lord is upright. He is my rock. May these things be true of you as you age, as you near death, and with that resurrection. May these be true of you. May they be true of us all. To close, in, uh, in Augustine's Confessions, he, he prays to God saying this. He says, For there is a joy that is not given to those who do not love you, but only to those who love you for your own sake. This is happiness, and there is no other. 
He prays elsewhere. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until we find rest in you. Jesus is the Lord's Christ, the Savior of sinners, revealing resurrection to you who love him, who find your joy in him. And it is ruin for those who all look elsewhere. By faith supplied by the Spirit of God, love him. Find your joy all wrapped up in him. Do so with Spirit-supplied patience and also with a readiness to see him face-to-face in death and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you love the world so greatly that you sent your own Son. And from the work of the Spirit of the Son, or after the work of the Son, the Spirit came. The Spirit was sent upon us that we might see such fruit of love, joy, of peace, of patience, as we love and have joy in Jesus Christ. God, produce in us what you so seek. God, that our joy may be full and that your glory would be revealed. God, continue to work in us whether we are a month old or a hundred years old. We praise you that you will not leave us or abandon us. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.